This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. In five. Check for sound. Four. It's showtime. Three. Let's two, go. One. Welcome to the Pro Audio Suite, a podcast for audio and voiceover professionals. Don't forget to check us out on our Facebook, the Pro Audio Suite Podcast. Now let's get on with the show. From Los Angeles, George Witham. From Chicago, Robert Marshall. From Sydney, Australia, Robbo. And from sunny Melbourne, Andrew Peters. This is the Pro Audio Suite. Uh, this week, our special guest is uh, someone we've had on the show before. In fact, uh, on the first show we ever did, come to think of it. Yeah. Uh, it's a guy I came across uh, via a video that uh, went viral uh, about the uh, reinvigoration of Detroit. At the time, he was with Low Campbell Ewald, since then he's moved on. Uh, you may remember him, you may not. But anyway, if you haven't uh, come across him before, I think you're going to find this riveting. He's a creative director at Weber Shanwick these days. He's his name is Ian Lanovich. Hi, guys. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm excited. <laughs> you, you are an excitable chap, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> which is probably a good thing in the uh, industry we're in to be uh, slightly excitable. I think that's what uh, one of the prerequisites of uh, certainly being creative. Uh, I agree totally. So, Ian, the, my question to you, being a creative director at advertising agencies in Detroit, is you probably do quite a few remote sessions. I'm guessing. And the reason we wanted to get you on the show is because we've never actually asked anybody in your position how they feel about people working, like myself, remotely. Um, the issues of quality, of uh, being able to direct, having eye-to-eye contact. What's the main thing, if you ever do a remote session, that actually does bug you? Uh, I don't really have much of an issue with working remotely. Um, you know, I've done that know, throughout most of my career, you know, whether it's, you know, if you're in Detroit and let's say you hire talent in, you know, another state or somebody in uh, New York or LA, you know, you're constantly having to patch into their studios anyway. So I, I think for most of my career, I kind of, um, I learned that that was pretty much the norm of, you know, not being able to see the person I'm working with. So I don't think there's really, you know, I mean, obviously if I'm sitting in the room with someone, I feel like I can give them easier direction and, you know, they can understand what I'm saying, but uh, I, I haven't really had an issue there and I definitely haven't had an issue from a quality standpoint. So what sort of uh, technology have you used in the past? Because I should, you know, mention that uh, Robert Marshall, who's with us, is uh, the founder of Source Connect or Source Elements. Is that the standard for you or is it still ISDN? You know, I, I think like right now in, in my current position, I'm doing a lot of social media work. And with social media, you're kind of taught to um, build everything uh, not dependent on sound, right? So we're actually not using a whole lot of voiceover in most of the executions that we create right now. Um, but it seems like what we're doing more of than that I ever recall doing is case study videos, um, presentations, you know, presentations, not, not to sell work to clients, but, you know, and often creating the client's presentation, you know, in order to, um, like one of my, one of my clients is General Motors, you know, so we might do presentations for General Motors to then go on, um, on an investor roadshow or things like that. Uh, so a lot of the voiceover that I've been doing recently has been for presentation work and for case study videos, you know, and in that case, 
you know, we're not looking for top tier talent. We're looking for somebody who sounds right, you know, for the story that we're telling. And we're looking for somebody that has a nice, clear and clean read. So I know uh, I have an in-house video production team uh, that we usually do for kind of like smaller to medium budget jobs. And they tend to use uh, Voices.com. I don't know if that, there's a specific reason they choose Voices.com over some of the other tools out there. Um, but a lot of times we'll just write a script, you know, hand it over to our video team. Next thing you know, uh, you know, sometimes a few hours later, they'll come back with several different reads. And then we can react to those. And in some cases, you know, we'll go with what we are provided. And in other cases, we'll actually schedule a live record. Does that make sense? That's it. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you should say Voices.com because uh, they were certainly in the news a lot and still continue to be. Uh, not for good reasons, unfortunately, but that's uh, another story in itself. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you see the voiceover industry changing then? I mean, apart from the, the mechanics of it, the style of voice, the delivery you're looking for, how much has that changed in, the, in the, maybe the last decade? I mean, I think the quality level, I know what what we're seeing, right? it seems like there was a big explosion of just anybody and everybody creating as much content as possible and kind of shoving that into the internet. And I feel now, you know, the metrics are starting to show that that doesn't work, you know, um, that the lower quality content, you know, just basically doesn't get the engagement, you know, that, you know, most of our clients want, you know, it's not getting the eyeballs on it. So it's kind of like we're going back to, you know, um, higher quality content, you know, even for something as simple as a Facebook post or a Twitter post. Um, I know, you know, on my clients, you know, we're starting to say post less, but higher quality posts and that, you know, and that's everything from, you know, the video, the motion and the animation, you know, the voiceover, the sound design. Uh, so we've been putting our efforts into creating, you know, what we kind of call hero content, you know, um, and then, you know, figuring out how to kind of do the day-to-day stuff, you know, um, without as much um, effort. And then basically, you know, put on most of our effort and most of our, you know, uh, budget into, you know, the here, like the higher quality stuff. So I think, you know, with the explosion of podcasts, like what we're on right now, and, um, you know, obviously all the voice tools like Alexa's and Google Homes and things like that, you know, um, which were really just kind of starting out and figuring out, you know, how that works from a marketing and advertising standpoint. I mean, I think audio is, you know, just as, you know, there's, there's more tools for audio now than ever. There's more people listening to podcasts. I think it's just like any other, um, you know, kind of newer, not that podcasts are something newer, but, you know, I'll be honest, I've heard clients reference wanting a podcast more in the last probably year and a half to two years than I have in the last decade. Um, so everybody's kind of eyes are open to these different voice tools and voice communication methods, but I don't think everyone has a clue what's involved in actually, you know, you know, putting them together and keeping them going. I'm interested, to, you, you mentioned in there um, talking about, you know, post and, and audio production and all the rest of it. I'm interested to know about budgets in general. Like, you know, it's all well and good that a client turns around and says, I, I'd like a podcast. Um, but when the client turns around and says, I'd like a podcast and I've got hundred bucks a week, <laughs> does, does that just mean we turn around and say then, okay, well, we'll squeeze a podcast into a hundred dollars a week. Or do we turn around and go, well, if you want to do it properly, then it's going to cost you $300 a week. Uh, I can't speak for anybody expensive. else, but I know from my standpoint, I would be pretty honest with what they have to do in order to, um, make it effective. You know, mm. for example, 
if you're a if you're a brand that can't commit to an ongoing podcast on a weekly basis, you know, for you know a year or longer, then you need to figure out a different way to go about it. Um, for example, uh, I was working with a client uh, about a year and a half ago where we were planning a podcast, and I think there's like a a perception that it's really simple. Uh, we'll just throw somebody in a studio and we'll basically record a whole bunch of stuff and, you know, we'll edit it down and we'll publish it. Um, but they're not really thinking about the fact that, um, you know, how are you building a, you know, a listening audience and keeping, keeping that audience, you know, kind of going week after week. So one of our recommendations was to do one of two approaches, either basically uh, partner with somebody who's already got that existing following, you know, with an audience that reaches who you want to go after and figure out how to align your storytelling with their messaging and then approach them with an idea. That would be one way to go about it. Or um, like basically kind of like using the podcast as an influencer. And then the other approach would be to do more of like a limited run series. So do maybe a sponsored podcast that's six to eight episodes, you know, um, around a, a, a specific topic so that you're not creating an expectation that there's anything to come after that. I, I see so much, let's say, let's call it rubbish because that's what it is. There's so much rubbish out there that you, you turn on a podcast and you try to listen to it and you can't even understand what's being said. Well, you know, perfect easy. Same client, uh, you know, that I'm referring to when I was planning their podcast about a year and a half ago, uh, you know, we, we had mapped everything out. We figured out kind of what our topic would be, what would our, you know, uh, the format of, you know, our six to eight episodes, we figured out a, a lineup of potential guests. And the one thing that we hadn't figured out yet was who is going to be the host. And in this specific case, the client had suggested that they wanted one of the members of their team to be the host. And it wasn't really the best scenario, you know, so we tried to do a couple trial runs, you know, we recorded it, you know, we had, you know, kind of a, a fake session, you know, where we had somebody playing the role of the guest and it basically bombed. And the whole idea fell apart, you know, from that point forward, because we didn't really have like our, our biggest advocate internally, who was going to be the host of this podcast, realized that they weren't the right person for it. And it kind of just fell apart. How many times has that happened to you, Robert? <laughs> Where the podcast falls apart? No, no, just get someone, <laughs> someone comes in and says, I want my uh, manager to be the voiceover or the voice of this product. And you have to try and convince them that that's probably not such a good idea. So I, I usually don't get really into the uh, casting or decision making there at all. I've certainly done many spots where... Uh, the agencies that have said it's a hard and fast rule that whatever people who work for the agency don't do the voiceover. Um, I've certainly done many spots where it's certainly creative directors and writers who end up being the voiceover on campaigns. Um, and there's actually something nice about that because usually they just know what they want and they're very self-directing and it goes very smooth. Um, so I, I don't personally mind that it's a little bit, you know, of a feedback loop and there's all kinds of other issues with that and they never actually get paid a dollar um, like they're supposed to be. Mm. So I've, I've certainly seen plenty of times where, um, you know, like the wrong person is casted <laughs> and it takes too long to do something because, you know, like, um, and, and often the reason why that happens, to be honest, isn't because like, you know, the agency casts who they want, but the agency doesn't have like the, the client then um, hears it and they want something completely different. And so the agency is like kind of 
they're they're a little bit too insular with with their concept of something, and it might certainly be better, but in the end, it's the client who's buying it, and so they end up um, with two ideas that are not meeting. You know, like here's the idea, but here's the talent, and the two are not they're not intersecting lines essentially. The greatest one for me in answer to your, that same question you posed, AP, is back in my radio days. I did. 15, 18 years of radio was the classic of the account exec walking into the studio and saying, oh, the client's going to voice this one, <laughs> oh, which was yeah. always a rip snorter. And you could usually guarantee that it would be those spots that two weeks later, the account exec would again be standing in your studio saying the client's saying they're not working. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> You know, I, I haven't had a situation where the client was the talent. Um, you know, I see it all the time and I see it with a lot of, you know, ads out there. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I guess I've got mixed opinions on it. In some cases, I think it could, you know, be transparency and it could be authentic. You know, uh, you know, when you've got the CEO of a company leading your marketing campaign and speaking on behalf of, you know, the point of view of that company, um, you can't get much more authentic than that. You know, but when it when, when it starts to feel forced, you know, we use the term retail messaging, you know, heavy sales oriented offer based messaging. And you've got a leader of the company doing that type of work. It almost feels lazy to me. Um, like, like we didn't want to pay for talent. So we're just kind of shoving, you know, um, one of our marketing leads or somebody like that in the role. I got a classic. You're going to love the way you look. (laughs) (laughs) This was, this was years ago. I'm talking like 92 or something. I was working in Brisbane at a radio station up there and and um, the local butcher shop decided they were going to run some spots on the radio station and decided it would be a great idea if their apprentice, whose name I couldn't even remember, let's call him Joe for the sake of it, <laughs> that Joe should voice their commercials. So um, so Joe came in and was probably 16, 17, pimply-faced and <laughs> tried to read these commercials and, and everyone in their room was just shaking their heads and their client went, oh, that's great. Yep, let's run with it. <laughs> Yeah, it's terrible. Five hours of editing later, it finally went to air. And yeah, sure enough, a week later, the, the campaign got pulled because nothing was being sold. <laughs> yeah. The, the only one of those campaigns that ever worked, and it's, still, it's gone down in sort of advertising history, is the Remington ad. I loved it so much, I bought the company. Well, there's there's a bunch of them. There's, there's Wendy's and there's Papa John's and there's whatever, uh, the Coat Factory, what's it called? Um, I, there, there's probably a ton where the... Uh, someone in the company is the spokesperson for it. Mm. But I think Ian's right. It's got to be the right person. Absolutely. Yep. Now, have you ever had a session, Ian, where um, it's going horribly wrong and you've had to sort of end the session and get somebody else to voice something? Uh, I never have. Um, You know, uh, and now I haven't worked in a whole ton of broadcast um, television, but um, I haven't really ran into, you know, I mean, I've run into scenarios where we were trying to get reads and just no matter who we read, like, no, not right not right, not right, you know, and you, you end up going through way more than what you wanted to go through. And you kind of feel like at the end of the day, man, I should have just, you know, uh, cast somebody for this as opposed to just, you know, putting it out there for everyone. But for the most part, I guess I've been pretty lucky in um, getting pretty solid talent. Uh, and I'm sort of interested from your point of view, receiving all those auditions for the jobs that you put out there in terms of time and money, is it not worth your while just to cast the person you want and pay them to do it? Yeah, I don't, um, I don't have a strong point of view on this one. Uh, so when I started at my current agency, um, 
I inherited a video, on-site video production team. So in my prior role, uh, I usually dealt with third-party video, um, you know, production and post. And when I came into this agency, um, you know, a lot of the, I would say, day-to-day work was being handled by, you know, our internal video production team. And they just kind of, you know, whatever it was voiceover, they didn't really cast anybody in sessions, more or less. They just used the online tools. Um, but that's also because they didn't really have creative direction. It was more or less a, a design studio or a video production studio that they just took requests and just executed. So when I started, the goal was to build, you know, a more creative agency practice, you know, traditional roles of copy ed- or, uh, copywriters and art directors and creative directors. And so we actually pushed this team to start, you know, doing casting. But when it was quick turnaround, and, uh, you know, I need something in the next two days and it's for kind of a low budget piece, like a case study video or for a presentation. Um, we kind of just didn't argue it, you know, but if we were doing ads for our client, you know, we tended to, you know, at least patch somebody in and, and cast somebody for the role. So is, it, is that because it's a union, non-union thing? Or, or you talk about the payments. Is, is that the reason, do you think? You know, on, on my side, you know, my agency is not a signatory so, you know, most of the talent that we use and most of the work that we're doing is for social media, for PR purposes, um, you know, primarily all digital. So we don't tend to go through union unless, you know, our client is kind of demanding it or, if we, you know, there's a certain circumstance that we need to. Um, so I don't think it's really, I think it's just that kind of what this team was using before I got there and they just kind of, um, you know, stuck to it. What about you, Robert? Do you, do you use mainly um, SAG talent or are you non-union? Most everything we do is SAG and AFTRA. There, I mean, there is a fair amount of stuff that gets done non-union. What, what actually sometimes happens is that if it's a, you know, like the agency's a signator, but they have some project that doesn't have a budget, so then what they do is they just have the whole thing produced through somebody else because then they're just paying a fee and we didn't know that they hired a non-union talent. So it, it becomes like a, a way around the, that situation for them. But I'd say like 80% of what we do is is union. Um, and we don't get into the casting too much. Um, the way casting used to happen for us is like, um, I mean, I remember back in the day when we'd actually do castings and people would come in. But um, if if the agencies want us to do the casting because they don't want to rip through you know, 500 files and they just want us, they kind of trust us to have a, at least a good idea of what they're looking for. So, um, we, we used to just use voice bank. Um, and then we would call that down to 25 or 50 or maybe a hundred at the most of, of, you know, for them to pick what does happen now that voice bank went by the way of voices.com is that you just sort of know who the agents are and you just have a group email and you're like, here's the direction, send. Here's where you upload your files to, done. And then we go through them. And so that's sort of like what casting has become for us, uh, at, you know, just from a, but it used to go through voice bank and then sort of the whole casting thing, at least from the union perspective, just blew up. And I know that there's, um, redefining space now in a sense. Mm. So Robert, how do you find dealing when you're dealing with an ad agency, like, you know, Ian being a creative guy, how, how do you, how do you, um, how has that changed for you in the last 
you know, decade? Uh, hasn't really, other than honestly, just the in-house thing. <laughs> so, so you know, uh, my my question to Ian more so would be like, how how is it going? out of house compared to in-house. And I know that's like a really tough question to answer. Um, but certainly for us, that's changed the the business landscape. But the work itself, the workflow um, really hasn't changed. Some of the biddings changed. I mean, it's no longer hourly for the most part. It really is like, you know, firm bid. And um, so that's that's changed. But once once you're doing like as, as the engineer, not the business side of it, that hasn't changed. Um, we, you know, like I'm not getting into casting that much, if at all. So I, I always get that question a lot when someone finds out that I, you know, do sound design and makes for TV commercials. Oh, here's my demo. I'm like, wrong guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I, like nice, but really this, this is just going to flow through your agent and that's who's going to get the request for a oh, I wonder why you never audition. replied to my email with my demo. <laughs> 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 it yeah. all makes sense. Ain't that the truth? So, <laughs> so the question was that Robert asked, Ian, how is the difference between working in-house opposed to uh, outhouse in a post-house? Uh, I mean, it's, it's nice to have an in-house because you've got them right there, right? You know, so I can activate them at any point in time. And the way that, you know, we've handled, um, you know, staffing for our clients you know, we kind of treat uh, producers and editors very much like copywriters and art directors. You know, we don't, we didn't set up a system where there's a difference between, you know, what some agencies consider creative services versus production services. To us, it's, it's all one thing. So if you want to spend 20 hours with an art director messing around with a layout or, you know, to create a identity, that's no different than sitting there with an editor and messing around with some, you know, video footage and, you know, seeing what you can create out of it. Um, one of the things when, you know, I noticed when, when I started at my current agency, you know, well, you know, my prior agency, you know, editors were editors, producers were producers, shooters were shooters. And when I came into my new role, it was like everybody did everything. You know, so I had a, a crew of, they all had the title producer, but they were all editing. They were all, you know, you know, shooting cameras. They were all doing photography. They were all actually producing jobs. You know, so one of the things that we did you know, when I started to kind of, you know, really build the, you know, the, the more creative practice was being honest with what our capabilities were. You know, before I was there, they were pretty much looking at it as a revenue stream and trying to shove every project through our in-house video team, even if the work wasn't right for that team or not. You know, so... I think what we do is we look for, no matter what, we look for who's the best, you know, to handle the job, you know, whether it's in-house or out-of-house. Uh, but in a lot of cases, especially when you're working in social media, it's nice to maybe have, a, have you know, a production company or a post-production company kind of do the initial set of content, but then transfer that footage in-house so we can do a variety of different social executions or cutdowns. I haven't, um, we do a lot of, we're starting to do a whole lot of stuff now with like Instagram stories. And um, I'm yet to meet a post-production house that knows how to do an Instagram story or understand how it all works. You know, they all know that it's vertical video, but they don't really understand how it works in different chapters and how it's kind of linear and safe zones and things like that. So I feel like it's easier to have them kind of um, shoot the video or edit the initial, you know, video, but then send that in-house and our team can kind of become experts in cutting it for the different social platforms. That is interesting because I, I I do think a lot of the post houses as we think of it they're holding on to that broadcast 
30 second spot to dear life. And, uh, you know, that's, that's changing. It's, it's much more digital these days. Everything comes with, if there's a 30 and a 15, there's now also a digital spot almost always. Um, and I, I think that the, the next thing is for, and it's actually happening all the time, you know, like the 30 and the 15 fall off and it's just digital. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, there's something wrong with this thing. It's a uh, 47 seconds long. <laughs> it's like, no, that's <laughs> you're no is. longer in the 30 second world. Yeah. That's right. And so like, you know, like having been in it for so long, I, I definitely see the post houses being in that rut and trying to fit everything into that context. Mm. Um, but, and, and I think, I think one thing that's really interesting to me and I was going to ask Ian, like, where do you see 3d coming into all this? Is this uh, any, is 3d any good from a marketing perspective or is it just a toy that's going to kind of go away? Do you think and be, like want want. Are you talking more specifically about like like three D in the sense of like VR? Yeah, like VR exactly. Yep. You know, I mean, there's a novelty to it. You know, you can create some really cool immersive experiences with it. You know, the best that I've seen it used is more in an event space because what's cool about VR, at least when you have a headset on, is it can kind of create a feeling, right? Like if you're on a um, you know, if you're on a roller coaster, you know, in a VR, you actually feel your stomach drop, right? And you can't really do that, you know, by just watching, you know, traditional video. Um, I think the issue with it from a marketing standpoint is that you're always trying to hit as many people as possible. And those people are not going to be sitting at their desks with a set of VR goggles sitting right next to them waiting for the next VR thing to scroll up in their Facebook feed. So you're always going to, you know, reduce your content to be, you know, what, your largest audience is going to be able to comprehend or, you know, experience, you know, without having to do anything extra. Do you, do you think there's any place for it for like, you know, more dedicated experiences where someone's like, here's our product, walk around it. Yeah, definitely. And, and Facebook's been rolling out some newer things. We, I, uh, Facebook was actually in the office a couple of days ago and uh, late last week. And, you know, we were reviewing some of their new, um, you know, VR um, formats, but it's not really true VR. It's more or less kind of like 360, you know, um, but they kind of fake it in a way where it kind of feels like VR. I mean, I, th- I still think you're like, to your point, yes, you can have a more immersive experience. I could walk around a vehicle in a VR setting. I don't have to go to a showroom in order to do that. You know, I can experience a museum in a, um, uh, you know, through VR, I don't have to actually go there. I think there's a lot you can do with it, but it, it's kind of for the audience once I've already got you. You know, I think when you're trying to do just straight up awareness messaging, which is the bulk of advertising, um, it's difficult to use those type of formats in that situation unless you have somebody in kind of a controlled environment like an event where you can kind of give them, you know, a specific experience where you hand them a pair of headsets, you know, you have them put it on and then you kind of control that experience. I think when you're dealing with like social platforms, you know, you know, trying to just have a VR experience or a, even a 360 video or a 360 photo come up in your feed when people are scrolling through it at such a fast pace. Um, you know, they're probably going to just pass by it because they don't really know what to do with it. You know, the average person doesn't really know how to experience the formats. We know it because we work in it. So, right. So it's, it's more of the click here for more kind of thing than the actual intro to it. You know, I think some of the stuff that the media outlets have done, like, you know, like New York times and 
some of the other, you know, larger media outlets, um, you know, um, probably BBC and some of the others where they actually have these dedicated VR kind of, um, news experiences where they could take you live into locations. So you're actually seeing, you know, stuff happen. I think that's really cool. Um, because, you know, if you're tuning into some breaking news and you could throw on your, you know, Google cardboard or your, your glasses that you got at some event, you know, and just, you know, you could be there, you know, at the spot that whatever's happening. I think, I think that's really cool for breaking news through like 360 and VR. Um, but I think just from a marketing standpoint, it's, it's going to take a while for that to, that adoption rate to get higher. I mean, probably what it's going to be is the, the content, whatever it is, you know, um, someone going to a news feed to watch something in VR and then, oh, by the way, sponsored by, and here's a VR experience of your car, of the latest you exactly. know, GM car, whatever it might be. Right. Yeah. Serving out. Yeah. When somebody's already in a VR experience, that's the time to hit them with a VR ad. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. So well, we're hoping for that. <laughs> oh, is that what you're working on currently? The- no, I haven't had a lot. I'm, I just, as a, you know, creator of media, I, I, I think it's exciting and that's like, I'd like to see it progress there. Because I, th- I think it's the it's the best new frontier we have. I mean, uh, you know, what, what was it before that? I was like, oh, HD was great, but it was really just higher resolution of the same thing. Surround sound was kind of higher resolution of the same thing, and it really didn't take off for the exact same reason that most people, you know, even when they do buy a surround sound setup, they just put all the speakers in the front of their room. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I think bringing it back to voice, I think through a VR experience, you know, people can get lost in those experiences pretty easily if they're not um, accustomed to, you know, doing VR. So, you know, voice becomes kind of your guiding light, helping you understand, you know, what to do next, where to go, where to look, you know, what to touch, what to click. And um, so I think needing that, you know, calming kind of presence, you know, in your headphones, you know, while you're kind of, uh, you know, going through these experiences is critical. Now, I know you're a sports fan, Ian, and I'm sure you watched the Super Bowl. And if you did, you would have seen an ad for a beer company that was ASMR, a girl sitting on the top of a waterfall. I did. And I watched, the, I watched that ad and I thought it was the most irritating ad I've seen. It, it, just, <laughs> it was just really drove me a bit nutty. What, what was your thoughts on that ad? Well, what's weird about it is it actually was relevant for me. So I, um, I would say about six weeks before the Super Bowl was the first time I had ever heard of ASMR. And we just got done. I'm in the middle of uh, creating an album for a client right now. It's a tourism client. And one of the things that we did is we went around the state um, in the U.S. and we recorded these raw natural sounds like water crashing up on shore and, you know, birds and, you know, walking on leaves through trails. And we recorded like hundreds of these like raw sounds. And our plan was to kind of turn that into an ambient album. And I was taking some of my colleagues through the concept because we've already actually recorded this. We're already, we already have the album produced and, you know, we're getting ready to kind of package it and launch it. And, um, one of my colleagues was, have you looked into ASMR? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I've never heard of that. And he's like, well, you gotta look, you gotta look at this. And he sent me some YouTube links and I'm like millions of views on somebody just taking slime and shoving it over a microphone (laughs) head was kind of funny to me. Um, and then I was starting to think about like, wow, we've got all these sounds 
that could potentially, I, I mean, I don't know if they'll create the same effect as like some of these ASMR sounds, but, um, so now all of a sudden, if you were to look at my presentation deck, it's got sections in there talking about creating YouTube playlists for ASMR. So as soon as the, uh, the Michelob Ultra Spot came out, I had given my presentation uh, to our client that same week after the Super Bowl. And I actually used that as an example. I'm like, nobody in the room probably knows what ASMR is, but if you were watching the Super Bowl and seeing the Mick Ultra Spot, you would have you learned that. And we have all these sounds now, so we could tap into a, uh, a current trend. So they, um, you know, if, if nothing else, it made us look smart. Yeah. It's interesting. See, We've talked about ASMR. Oh, uh, I was going to say, ASMR is going to make mouth-clicky VO talent popular. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. The funny thing with ASMR, we've talked about this before, I could see that becoming some kind of subliminal advertising. By now. You could just have, yeah, exactly. You could have these like, yeah, <laughs> noises that make you think about something or, um, you know, sort of subliminal sort of someone talking in the background. Could be used anywhere. Well, if you look at... Uh- there was um, Ikea. They did a 25-minute ASMR spot that they put on YouTube that has millions of views. It's got a whole bunch of earned coverage. And it was all geared towards a college audience. And what they basically did is they uh, created a dorm room, a uh, college dorm room with all Ikea products. And they had an ASMR influencer literally like rubbing their hands on the sheets or some of the different, you know, products in the dorm room. So it was a nice way to showcase all these products through an ASMR, um, you know, perspective. What what they should do is actually have smell ASMR, and then they could have it smelling like a spilt bong or something, and that would get the students in <laughs> for their dorm room. <laughs> Smell-o-vision. That's an old thing. Can I still get my $1 hot dog when I watch that, though? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but you can have your ramen noodles. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So what do you what do you reckon the the future of uh, voiceover, as in advertising or, or any other placement it could be? How do you see that sort of playing out in the next few years? Um, I got to imagine that it stays just as relevant and just as popular as it's always been. I mean, I don't have any stats to show if there's any decline in it over the last you know five to ten years or or an increase. But you know, going back to that point that everybody is getting told to produce content, content, content. Everybody's being told that video performs way better than static content within social media platforms. Um, I've watched a lot of paid media buys all starting to shift towards social media. Um, so if that's the objective, if the agency is being told, make more video, you know, uh, create more, um, you know, short form, um, you know, they've got to find a place for sound design and voice. But, but at the same time, you were saying that because, you know, often, people are seeing these things, but they're not listening or they're turning them off, that a lot of your focus is more on the visual than on the audio because you're assuming that that's often muted or, you know. Yeah, it's true. You know, so like uh, you might create a 10-second vertical video on Facebook that is, um, you know, has like um, really strong typeface to kind of, you know, help you understand the story. I think the way that we've been approaching it is if a person taps on the video, then give them a more immersive experience and you might hear the voice and you might hear the audio and music and sound design, you know, but if they choose to kind of just, you know, scroll on it without tapping it, they still get the message. But a lot of times what we're doing is you're creating that content in a package of a lot of other content. 
So you might be creating longer form videos that are going on the website, you know, or going on YouTube and then doing these shorter form videos that are going on, you know, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, ultimately trying to drive to the longer form stuff. So I think, uh, you know, people are doing bigger content packages, you know, that would consist of having voice and, you know, music and, you know, sound, um, but they're cutting it in a variety of different ways. And I know, I know what happens to me a lot is if I, you know, cause like certain platforms will play you the video, but nicely mute it for you. Cause I assume that that's like too intrusive. So you go to a web page, whatever the video starts playing. And then if it catches your eye, then you click on the unmute and you're like, what is this? And then there, there's the audio content for you, but the video is often has to be the first, like the thing that hooks you. But you've also got, um, yeah, you've also got audio. Like if you, a lot of us spend a large, as I did today, a large part of our life in a car. Um, so audio is number one in the car. Yeah. And I, I think that the podcast is going to like, it's just now in these next couple of years going to replace radio. Yeah. Because uh, satellite radio didn't take off, not not really as much, but and people stayed listening to local radio, and there was that local tie-in. Um, but I think that now that essentially, you know, you're buying cars now that have their own internet connection, and your phone is now essentially the head end for your car stereo, anyways. And so, boom, here's my playlist, and here's my podcast, and I think that the podcast is possibly becoming the new radio station. Yeah. And, and, and that's really what Spotify is after now. Yeah. There'll be, as we've said before, there'll probably be like some kind of a, a Spotify, Spotify version of a podcast where you have not just well, individual Spotify podcasts. bought Gimlet Media. Yeah, I, I just don't think it'll be individual podcasts. I think you'll have like networks who buy good content. Yeah, like the, the Netflix of podcasts hasn't totally emerged yet. You know, there's the slates and the gimlets and those channels and and those are probably like some of the biggest ones that are out there but um it hasn't taken off quite the same as something like netflix but i'm there i'm sure there's a you know like a subscription service out there that or feasibly out there that would be someone who wants their podcasts called and nicely presented and in an easily consumable service well i think the biggest issue they've got is they haven't taken ours on board i mean can't get better than this. Let's face blow it. up. <laughs> what are they thinking? That's right. Exactly. What they're obviously not, on? are they? I mean, Andrew can talk about anything, and it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew can talk underwater too. I should uh, just tell you. <laughs> yeah, that's almost true. I think I did on the weekend, but uh, that was another story. But uh, <laughs> how do you breathe when you're like? It's all about breath control. So how do you do that when you're underwater? Uh, circular breathing. You just oh, yeah. stick your you stick your butt out the out the water and breathe through your butthole. It's like a wild like a, like a didgeridoo, yeah. like same style, right? That's exactly it. exactly it. Yeah. Uh, Look bubbly- at that whale; it's watching us with one eye. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's breaching. Oh my god! Shut oh, a cub. Oh dear. Now we're heading downhill fast. We are. Yeah. Going back to the union conversation we had a little while ago, I had a case just recently working on, actually working on a podcast where I was, I needed to um, cast an American voice and cast a union voice and compared to Australian rates, nearly fell over 
at the amount that they were asking, this person was asking for. And I'm interested to know whether Ian thinks that sort of the the, the prices that are being charged for um, are actually giving rise to, you know, non-union voices and these voice places like Voices.com, like people with their own home studios and all the rest of it. Is, is, that, is that a factor, Ian, or is it, is it more just a convenience thing that you alluded to before? You know, I'm like the worst person in the world, that, you know, when it comes to money. Like, I have no idea how much anything costs. Yeah. And <laughs> I've been, um, most, most of my career, I've, I've had the luxury of working on larger clients or larger brands. So everybody's kind of bought into the fact that things just are expensive. Mm. Right? And then when I came over to my current agency, which does a lot of, you know, mostly PR, which is much scrappier, it was almost like the opposite. Like all of a sudden now I had clients that were used to parent, uh, you know, you know, paying very little for content, you know, and, you know, trying to go with a, you know, trying to sell a PR client on a SAG talents rates would never happen. You would have to figure out a different way to work. Um, now I'm kind of in the middle. I've got half of my clients are kind of more scrappy PR clients. And the other half of my clients are like large, you know, American brands, um, you know, that are already used to, you know, kind of um, sag rates and, you know, larger scale content plays. So, yeah, I haven't really, like, I personally don't have a perspective on um, what those, that talent's charging, but I know that depending on the type of client I work with and if they're used to working with sag talent or not, you know, they, they definitely get sticker shock if they've um, never worked with um, that type of talent. Yeah. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes. I can, I, can, I can comment on that a little yeah. bit. I, I think I think that the sticker shock is a definite factor. And um, I think it started around 2000 with the first SAG strike, actually. And um, that's when the agencies began realizing that it doesn't have to be union. And it, at first it was like, go to Canada. And, and they had to find other, you know, means around it. And when they went, oh, wow, well, that wasn't so bad. And that worked. And holy cow, it was... Like, you know, we're talking about like 10 times less. And also I've heard producers talk about how much, you know, easier it is because the unions have like, oh, well, if it's going to go on social media, it's this. And if it's broadcasting here, it's that and all this other stuff. And then, you know, a non-union guy is like, well, it's buyout for that. Have fun. I'm done. Send me my check. Yeah. And simplicity. And so I, I think that for various reasons, when people have a good experience with non-union, they kind of are pleasantly surprised. And then if they're able to, I mean, if it's, if it's an agency that's a signator, it's a whole different, you know, to change that it's, but if it's anything that's um, someone who's smaller, they, they're very often pleasantly surprised with how it's not so bad with non-union. And there's a lot of like, you know, like people try to put out these horror stories about how bad it is, but it's, there's a lot of really good non-union talent out there, quite frankly. Mm. Non-union is fine, but it's when it gets into that really scary territory where it's like a dollar a holler stuff, you know, someone's charging 20 bucks or whatever. Because, I mean, Robbo and I talked about this the other day. It was some someone he was working with. It was kind of that kind of rate. And we worked it out like if you wanted to make a decent living out of doing voiceover and you were charging what they were charging, you would have to do 20 bookings a day, five days a week. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that serious brands and serious like um, you know productions are 
willing to go that low because they have a lot of other collateral stuff that's going on. So they're paying for a studio. They value their own time. Um, I think that they, they, they want to have as close to that union experience as possible. And I think that's what they were pleasantly surprised by with was not that they initially went after it because of the rate they went after it because they had to. And then when they realized that it, you know, like um, the whole, you get what you pay for thing wasn't totally true. Like you can pay less and have nearly the same thing if you shop in the right place. That's the other thing about the non-union experience is that, you know, you got to know how to navigate it yourself. And there's all kinds of pitfalls and other problems, whereas the, the union atmosphere is much more structured. And so it's much harder to screw it up compared to non-union where it's very easy to screw it up or book the wrong person and you're paying that person anyways and things like that. Um, you know, I, I, I've got a point of view on that too. Yeah. We did, um, I just got done working on a project where we had um, celebrity talent and uh, there was two celebrities and there was a TV spot involved and three, four different social media executions that kind of came out of the TV spot. Three of those executions on social, um, different videos, um, the, uh, the agents for the celebrities kind of considered them alts. So they didn't charge anything extra, you know, to, to utilize their voice on, you know, those executions. There was an additional social media execution, which was for an Instagram story that they considered a new execution. And, um, so the celebrity agents came back and said that they wanted a hundred thousand dollars each for, um, you know, to, to utilize their voices on it. Now this, this entire, you know, piece of content probably cost no more than maybe $20,000. So clients and agency alike weren't going to spend $200,000 on the voice talent for an execution that was, you know, not even a 10th of that. So basically, um, we went with sound alikes, you know, at, I think it was a 10th of the cost and, uh, nobody would know the difference. Right. I, I had an experience, um, where, uh, we were finishing a spot. We, we really had everything we wanted. It was actually one of these sessions where we had like three talent. They were, I think it was two different studios and three talent, like, you know, one remote. It was a sort of a collaborative interaction. And at the very end, the, uh, I don't know who it was, the writer, the art director, somebody says, why don't you improvise one? And they do. And it was great. And I don't know that we even used it and I don't think we did. But then the next day, all the agents hit them up with like triple fees for uh, improvising. Oh, wow. And it was like, what not to say in session? Yeah. And and so it's like those kinds of experiences where they're just like, you know, there's just way less red tape with with non-union. And that's that's sort of where I've seen it. It's not so much... I mean, and, and even if the issue wasn't the price is like, you know, a, a lot of the times I've seen it with the agencies where it's horrible to go back and have to rebudget something. So even if they have the money, it's just a big giant hassle to have to, you know, tell, tell their client it's going to cost more, get all that paperwork done. And that's where people become unhappy about that. Um, so I, I don't know that non-union is so much driven on fee as it is on ease, with the fee being a really kick-ass bonus. The interesting thing about Union, which I, I completely blew my mind when I first 
started talking with uh, Jim in New York, and he's a paymaster, was he told me how the structure worked, which, which can seem really confusing because, say, for instance, the job's a $1,000 job. So he will sit there and he will write four checks, uh, one to himself, above line, uh, one to the agent, below line, and then one to SAG, above line. So basically, you've got 260 bucks above line on the $1,000 fee. So if you go, oh, it's going to cost you a thousand bucks, and then you get a, an invoice for twelve hundred and sixty. You go, well, why is it twelve? You said a thousand. Oh yeah, because that's um, that's because you've got uh, the paymaster fee and you've got the um, SAG after fee. Like buying a car. Yes, it is exactly like buying a car. I tell you what, it makes the Australian model look simple. Seriously, it we does. Have, it, it is so simple here. For those for those who are sort of across the other side of the Pacific Ocean, we basically so say. Uh, I'm casting a, a national commercial for a client. It's $380 for a 30-second spot. Is that right, AP? Uh, what, radio? Like, yeah, radio. And, no, and then you're done? For, okay. It's three, three, 330 for a one-state short-term. Okay. So, so let, let's just call it 450 it. bucks. No residuals. No residuals, no. no nothing you get. Your $450, I get an invoice from Andrew's agent, Send them the check. Uh, send them the check. They take their 13 percent. Andrew gets the rest. But if I turn around at the end of the session and say to AP, mate, I think we've got everything. But give me one how you hear it. That doesn't cost me any more. That's because that's what I'm paying for. I'm paying for him to come and interpret my script. So it's really right. interesting well, to hear you but guys you didn't talk say- about that. You didn't say improvise. Yeah, yeah, it's not because all the well, time if, it's if, like if, how if did I you asked him to it? improvise, it wouldn't cost me. If I asked him for a character. That right. would cost me more. That's another 150, 180 bucks or something. But if I asked him to just I've, improvise, that's all part of the fee. I, I've seen it before where some talent, you know, like they they get into the argument of that's another version or not. And other talent are just very clearly happy to have the gig and sure, I'll read another one. And would you like me to do something on your voicemail? And they're not going to go tattletailing to their agent about every little thing that they might be able to milk out of the client. Um and so it, but I, there, there's a lot less of that, certainly, I'd say on the uh, non-union side, yeah. um, I'm, uh, I, I get the feeling because there's, there's fewer rules. The more I hear about the union side of things with voiceover in the States, the more I think they're just doing themselves a massive disservice, seriously. They've got to be really careful. I mean, there's a reason for it. And I I'm absolutely 100% get, get the reason why you want to be SAG-AFTRA because, you know, like, uh, unlike here in Australia, we have free health insurance and we have free pension, but in the States you don't. So what you get by being a member of the union is you get your health um, and you get your pension and that's why they want to do it. And it, and it makes complete sense. I think that the- it's not just that you have a, you have an agent that's going to fight for you. You have rates that you know what they are. You don't have to negotiate everything individually. I think that a, a non-union talent is very often in the position of having to do all of that themselves. And, uh, and so I think the, I think the reason why the union thing works is because you have a very well-defined talent base. You know, you're going to get quality, you know, exactly how it's going to be executed, even though it's complex, it's like, it's a set of rules that works the same for everybody. So, so you can kind of put it through the machine and it always works. And, and with non-union, it's, it's always a, 
Like, how does this, and like, how, how are we going to do it this time? How are we going to do it that time? But from both sides, I mean, like maybe the talent's looking at it and going like, they're only paying this much for these many spots. Like, oh, really? Or vice versa, you know, maybe they find a talent they want and this talent tries to build things differently than that talent. There's less structure. And I think that that's where, you know, so, so you get the benefit of lower cost, probably fewer rules, but, you know, the downside is probably you have more variability too. Well, here's one for yeah. both of you. In fact, probably all three of you, because with real-time casting, you're involved in the US voiceover market as well, AP. Look True. down Look down the track 10 years for me, thinking about um, sort of younger creatives, younger, um, uh, you know, content creators coming up through the ranks who doing business online is basically second nature to. And then thinking about the discussion we've had in the last 40 minutes, taking on board everything we've spoken about, do you think these online agencies are only going to get stronger or do you think they're going to go away? Do you want me to answer first? Well, yeah, go, you go, go around the table. Let's start with you, AP. Um, my theory is that I think they will shrink. I think the industry, um, a lot of the debris that's on the, you know, the, the, the masses that are claiming to be voice talent will start to disappear. Uh, I'm hoping that um, the quality will come back where people expect quality and they won't accept anything less, which then makes everybody have to step up. Uh, but I also think that people are going to start going back to their little community. I don't, I don't think they'll just throw th- scripts out to, you know, to thousands of people to audition for. I think they'll get to know a group and they'll stick to that group. I think it'll go back that way. That's my feeling. Could be completely wrong. Um, I think it's going to go completely gig economy. Do you think so? Uber. Absolutely. I, I think it's just, it's too easy for everyone to get into it and... There's a lot of turnover in the, you know, like, so everyone's used to buying things online. And so as long as it's online and there's people who are jumping in on the supply side and the demand side, and all they know is online, I think it's inevitably all online eventually. I I think it's going to be online. I'm not disputing that, but I don't don't think it's going to be like a free-for-all. I think it will narrow right down. I I think it will narrow down. I I think there will be a few sites that corner the market. I think we've seen that with Voices.com. There's been pushback, but I think that is that's just the way big business goes. And there's going to be mm-hmm. um, I th- look. I yeah. think the first I, one that comes in, you know, that is completely transparent, that still gets the work for people, yeah. uh, and is quality controlled. So you make sure whoever's on there is you know can actually do what they they claim to do. And their home studios are high quality and all that kind of stuff. Then people will feel more, much more comfortable about it. But it also means the industry will shrink into, uh, you know, maybe two smaller sides. Yeah, a couple buckets. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Right. Well, we've had a, we've had a vote each way. Let's um, let's decide the winner, Ian. What, what's what's your thoughts on all this? <laughs> I, you know, I I think I was interpreting it different in my head. I was just trying to. I was just thinking about the fact that you know I've got, I've got a nine year old daughter who's got a YouTube channel. She's got her own microphones. She's got her own camera equipment. She's got her own tripods, her own green screen, and she's nine. Her seven-year-old brother knows how to use that equipment. It's like if you're if you're Gen Z right now and you're graduating college, you grew up um, knowing how to be on camera. You grew up, you know, hearing what your voice sounded like. You know, I think for most of us, the first time you kind of heard your voice was when you heard it on like a voicemail or uh, you know. Um, 
somebody's answering machine and you're like, well, that's what I sound like, you know, and, and you, you know, hated kids it. are learning how, you know, they're hearing their voice and they're learning how to talk into can or talk into microphones and adjust their voice at a very young age, you know, so you've got a whole, you know, generation of content creators right now that know how to create, uh, know how to use all the modern tools, um, know what they like. And, um, and they're very authentic about how they go about it. Um, and, you know, hence the explosion of Snapchat and, you know, just story-based content like Instagram stories and things like that. So, um, so I don't really know where it's going to go, but I think, you know, um, you know, a lot more people are going to feel like they can do it themselves or they know somebody who, who can get them what they need, you know, whether it's a friend that knows how to design, a friend that knows how to, you know, shoot a camera, a friend that knows how to, um, you know, uh, be talent on screen or be voice on, you know, on, on screen or on camera. And um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, we're already seeing it with all these influencers and influencer-based networks and stuff like that. It's just, um, you know, voice is kind of another angle of that, you know, just like the ASMR stuff. You know, how many of these uh, whisper, you know, um, you know, uh, ASMR people, you know, are going to go off and do other forms of, um, you know, radio and podcasts and stuff like that because they made a name for themselves doing, you know, those types of videos. So, so when people are looking for talent, be it video editing, um, voiceover, et cetera, do you think it just becomes who you know and, and the market is sort of just out there in the general social media and social platforms and just where people are? Or do you think it all funnels into a few conduits like, if you want to get driven someplace, it's Uber. If you want to get a voiceover, it's XYZ website. If you want to find a video editor, it's, you know, DEF website. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I mean, I mean, I think you're always going to have, I, I think in just the creative industry in general, the more that we could see each other and be around each other, you know, tend to create better relationships. Um, you know, you get used to the people you work with, you get used to the people that you kind of outsource, you know, you work out to. Um, I just think that there's going to be um, maybe just a lot more, you know, 20, 20, 30 years ago, there was only so many people that knew how to do or work those technologies, knew how to use those cameras, use that equipment, understood how to shoot certain things, how to photograph a vehicle, you know, things like that. And, I, you know, that specialty work, I think there's more people that are accepting good enough. And, um, you know, so you're always going to have your specialist and your, your higher quality talent, your high, higher quality shops. But um, there's going to be a lot more clients that are going to say, um, yeah, well, I know a friend who can do that. So I don't want to pay that much for it when I know people can, that can do it for less. I mean, I see it all the time. Where, like, I don't work too much in, uh, in, you know, app or web development anymore. But now with like Squarespace, you know, and Wix and Weebly and, you know, everybody's friend that knows how to code a WordPress website, clients don't want to pay for that anymore. They'd rather put the money in the content than the actual build of the, you know, the website. And, you know, so a lot of those web shops just kind of went under because of it. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't really know exactly where, where it's going to go. I just think there's more people out there that are going to be able to do what the skilled professionals were the only ones able to do, you know, back in the day. Yeah. It'll become less of a black art and it'll become more right, right, like right, exactly. common commodity. Sure. I, 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 I just wanted to round back actually to the uh, sort of in-house, out-of-house thing. And um, to what degree um, does the, like, 
like the in-house, you're working with the same group of people. So there's a consistency, there's an immediacy, and and there's that aspect of it. And traditionally, the out-of-house thing, um, you know, whatever, there's been this like, we are experts. But there's also been the... Um, and I've always, I've often felt this, you know, just working at various post houses where there's a lot of um, other incentives <laughs> that are thrown out there, whatever it is, like tickets and food and you name it. Um, does this generation care about that anymore? Yeah, like all the perks. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like, you know, I really don't. I mean, I'm, I'm 41 now. You know, it's still kind of nice to go to an edit studio and get a free lunch, you know, but, um, but I'm also too busy. And a lot of the time I'm as quick as I can get out of that edit studio, I'm getting out of there and I'm trying to jump onto something else. So I, you know, I think there's something, um, you know, I think everybody likes a perk here or there, but I just think, um, at least most of the younger talent that I'm seeing, they don't even realize a lot of that exists, you know, and they are working right. with that's, a lot that's, more that's what I've in-house options. You know? I, I, I think they don't even know how it used to be. I mean, yeah. you used to have your right. Coke yeah. and your weed paid for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. You used a razor blade to what? Sorry? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Cut um, tape and? Yes, exactly. Oh, that That's where going. I was going. <laughs> I, I, I'm interested too, just to, I mean, there's there's the, in, following on from what Robert asked you, there, there is the nice side of things, absolutely, in terms of, you know, drugs and lunches and all the rest of it. But what about the other things that come with sitting in an edit suite in terms of being able to direct talent um, and sort of get an idea and sort of feel immersed in the recording, like sitting there watching as the pitches go through while the voiceover's doing the voiceover for your TV commercial. Is that sort of stuff important anymore? Or is that sort of with, with voices.com where you send the script and you get it back? Is that sort of stuff going by the wayside? No, I, I, I don't think anything replaces being able to sit there in the edit studio and kind of be a part of what's being created. I think that's um, so key, especially when you have, um, you know, uh, higher priority work, you know, or work that has a quick turnaround where you don't really have the time to, um, uh, to screw up, you know, and you've basically got to get it right on the first, first go. Yeah. I, I, I call that pin the tail on the donkey production. Yeah. The tail on the donkey. Yeah. You're like there, yeah, yeah. there, there, eventually you get pretty close and you never hit it right on. Cause you're just tired yeah. of telling the person that they're off. Just on, on the back of that question, then Ian, I'm interested in your thoughts with, advent of Source Connect and their products or Source Elements and their products that are bouncing around at the moment and and the possibilities that become, you know, the faster the internet becomes, the more the possibilities become infinite. If you could sit in your office and do all that from your office, see the voiceover talent in the booth, watch the pictures go by as he's voicing, does that, is that an option or is that, is that a way that things might go or is there nothing that replaces sitting in that room with the engineer having those conversations? Uh, I don't know. I just haven't done it the other way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think if, you know, if I, <laughs> if I were to sit, you know, if I were to sit in my office and be able to kind of direct and edit, you know, while feeling like I'm in the studio and the outcome was just as strong, then I would do it again. Um, but if the outcome wasn't as strong, then I don't know. Right. I, I think it goes away. So, so, so here's another sort of more back to the in-house, out-of-house thing. How much of the um, creative interplay and the dynamic changes when you're working with fellow employees compared to a client-vendor relationship? 
Um, well, client, you know, vendors never say no to you, right? So, you know, they might right. turn around yeah. and complain back to their superiors and saying, I've got seven projects going on. Which one do you want me to do? And this client's asking me to make the 20th change to, you know, an edit. Um, but they always seem to figure out a way to, you know, meet your delivery needs. Um, in-house, you know, is a little bit different because, you know, you've got a project manager or somebody who's kind of looking at all the projects. And if you, um, you know, throw a change in, in the final hour and it's going to disrupt something, you know, they'll make that known. Um, but at the same time, I, I haven't ran into really any issues internally with anybody, um, I guess, pushing back, you know, um, you know, but at, at the same time, I think that at least in my agency, there's a pretty good hierarchy. You know, we, we don't like, it's not like we're trying to create kind of a, a system where, you know, you fear the creative directors and things like that. But, um, but they do know who's ultimately responsible for the decision at the end of the day, you know? So, uh, I think if, uh, if an editor is dealing with a junior creative team and the editor note has more experience and they feel that the change that's being asked for is not ideal, um, they might push back on it a little bit, but if the creative director comes in and, you know, makes a call, you know, everybody just adheres. I think actually in-house, you can probably get changes made faster as long as the in-house team is run efficiently where they're, um, you know, they're, they're not overbooked. And so they are able to be responsive and, um, and then they're even more responsive than an out-of-house place can be because they're right down the hall. You just walk in and be like, hey, can you pop this open? Can you change that? And, and they do. Or is that, if not, that's a phone call. A producer has to convey that to the, whoever the editor is, et cetera. And so what could probably be done in the same office in 15 minutes takes an hour to go, you know, out of house. And so that's the same argument with uh, like home studios too. If, if I uh, have to do a pickup, they just drop me an email and it's, sent straight back to them. So um, instead of having, you know, someone book them, drive into so-and-so, you know, that kind of caper. I, I, I think I think it is a faster world, that's for sure. One of the, one of the difficult things that I've noticed, or which I'm curious to see how things, you know, evolve over the next uh, five to ten years is you've got a lot of industries now that are starting to build their own creative outfits. Like even mine, like I work for a PR company, a traditionally known as a PR company, but now we're kind of doing advertising and you know, various digital marketing and social and things like that. Um, so you've got these PR companies that are, you know, building creative teams. You've got clients that are building their own in-house creative teams. Um, but most of them lack any type of real creative leadership. They're really kind of built more like design studios, you know, with some writers. And, um, and because of that, it's more about just the execution. It's go create me of this, create me of that, create me of this, create me of that. And they're just reacting to whatever gets created as opposed to having like real creative directors that understand the essence of a brand and understand how to kind of utilize the tools around them as opposed to the tools that they have available, you know, on their team. You know, so I think, uh, you know, a lot of teams wouldn't even know to go, you know, cast a voiceover talent. They would just, you know, figure it out in house. And I'm seeing that like, even at my agency, that's, that's kind of how my, our team was before I started there is they were just executing. And when I look across our network of different, you know, you know, offices for my agency, there's a lot of people that have the title creative director, but there's very few actual creative directors. 
And that goes for a lot of uh, the in-house client teams too. I, I think I've seen this go, I don't know if it's full circle or just some sort of tie the knot kind of thing, but um, so you had end clients hiring agencies going out to, you know, vendors to, to get the job done, to the creative content made. And then recently the ad agencies have been trying to pull all that in-house. But the thing where it's like kind of inverted and gotten upside down, I've seen this at least once where a major company, they went out and they basically hired art directors and writers directly from an agency. And then instead of building an in-house we're going to make our own videos. They just began using vendors and they just basically like cut the agency right out of it and hired the people from the agency. And did that go wrong? The product was similar to anything else that we have produced, you know, because the writers came, I, I, I think where it goes wrong is when there's no more agencies to mentor any creatives. Um, but in this particular case, these guys came out of, you know, they were, they were from, I mean, like an agency that was doing national spots and big campaigns and they just got, you know, hired to work directly for one of their yeah. clients. And you can see why and, you do that. And the only difference to me, which I was pleasantly surprised was like, well, they, they went over and kind of, you know, grabbed their own talent from the, you know, writing and, and art directing point of view, but they didn't go through all the trouble of, you know, creating a whole, you know, corner of their office where they've got a production department. They said, we're just going to, go to some out-of-house vendors and get that done that way. Yeah, I see th things like that are definitely changing. And that's, um, I mean, we've talked about one of the clients that I had that uh, is doing a very similar thing. But um, that's a story for another day, I think, because that's an interesting one in itself. Yeah, it kind of turned the whole thing inside yeah. out. And I haven't seen a lot of it, but, I, but when I saw it, I was like, this is definitely new. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and for me, I mean, a, a little bit... Um, pleasantly surprising simply because the um, agencies have been pushing back so hard on the, you know, create, putting everything in house that um, it's, it's definitely like, you know, where does that leave the, the individual vendors? It's a tough position for them. Yeah. Should we wind up? I think we should. I think we've uh, monopolised enough of Ian's time today. Thank you very much. I think for we it, have. <laughs> so thank you very much, thank Ian. You Always Thanks, a pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, and, thank you. Um, yeah. All the best with your new venture. Well, relatively new anyway. Thank you very much. That was the Pro Audio Suite. If you have any questions or ideas for a show, let us know via our Facebook, the Pro Audio Suite Podcast. Yeah.